You're listening to an SBS News podcast. This notion that women here are oppressed or that, you know, we don't have rights, when in fact it's the complete opposite. The rights that women in Qatar enjoy are the rights that the monarchy have handed to them. I'm Andrew Chappelle, and this is a controversial podcast, one that's recorded on the lands of the oldest continuing cultures on Earth. SBS acknowledged the traditional custodians of country and their connections and continuous care for the skies, lands and waterways throughout Australia. We have football in our blood, and the most important thing is that Messi has the cup and he will bring it to Argentina. <laughs> Qatar 2022 was the family-friendly tournament the organizers had hoped for. Now that it's over, let's talk about a perspective that's often overlooked and the sea of men at every match. Nearly 40% of football fans worldwide are women and girls. In this episode, we'll hear from women who see football as a force for change in their community, an equalizer in any patriarchal society, including the host nation. Here's what some women said about the World Cup. So from reading the media, I've never left Europe, so all my knowledge came from reading up on it. Um, I was expecting a very dangerous place for women. I didn't think I was going to be safe here. My dad came out specifically because it was just going to be on me on my own because he was so worried about the safety aspect as a 19-year-old girl in Qatar um, from coming here. That's not been the case. As a travelling female fan, I can say that I have felt very safe. I've had no catcalling, no wolf whistling, nothing like that. I think it is actually due to um, more socially conservative society. I think alcohol contributes a bit more to hostility rather than things like catcalling, wolf whistling and sexual harassment. It's not your typical, like, fighting and everything like you'd see back home. It's been absolutely fantastic. I was at the Euros. Fueled by alcohol and drugs, a violent and ticketless mob, numbering 2,000, tailgated, stormed disabled gates or fire exits and broke into the stadium. Quite frightened for my life, to be honest, at the Euros. There's so many people. There's been absolutely no trouble here at all. I've lost my voice, too much singing. Um, but absolutely perfect atmosphere. They're so friendly. People were saying to me, you won't be able to walk down your street by yourself, all the rest of it. Absolutely no problems whatsoever. The stadiums are very safe. You don't see anyone touching you. People are very respectful. The atmosphere is very good, especially for everyone. We know very well, especially the women, that people say no women, no women. And for football, it hasn't been very safe, especially in other countries. But here in the stadium, there's a very good and safe atmosphere for women. Qatar 2022 has social programs that use football as a tool for development. Generation Amazing has benefited more than one million young people in over 35 countries so far. They create safe spaces and football pitches in communities affected by violence or natural disasters and where child marriage is an issue. And they use football as a hook to build life skills and challenge attitudes about what girls can do. Throughout your journey, you obviously faced a lot of different challenges and you felt mistreated by society and men 
No offense. What motivated you to keep going? Endurance, the genuine belief that you can do it. The power is, stands with us. And that is important because once you believe in this, you can challenge the whole world. And as I always say, if I managed to challenge my context, my situation, being a Palestinian, football, political, cultural, social, all that, and I managed to make my dream come true, every girl, every woman, every boy, every man can do this as well. Absolutely, huh? Hi, I'm Yusra Samir Imran. I'm the author of my semi-autobiographical YA novel, Hijab and Red Lipstick. I'm also a journalist based in the UK and a women's rights advocate. I did a bit of a career change um, back in 2016 when I was about 26, 27 years old. Um, I think that was a time in Qatar where everyone had been bitten by the fitness bug and the bodybuilding Mm. bug. (laughs) And so I sort of followed in my brother's footsteps. He had retrained um, to be a personal trainer. And then I followed and uh, did several fitness instructor qualifications. I think in the last five or six years, fitness is an area in Qatar which um, has become very popular, including with the local Qatari population. And it's something um, that's being encouraged by the Qatari government, especially in the wake of like um, high rates of obesity, high rates of type 2 diabetes and high blood Mm -hmm. pressure. So this was like the one area I feel that was very positively backed by the state there. And um, for a while I was a sort of fitness slash well-being influencer out there. Um, I did a little gig with with Puma. Um, I used to do um, a guest slot on QBS Radio, which is the English radio station out there, where I used to talk about um, fitness and nutrition and well-being. I think even until today, I think one of the nice things about the country that they have that annual Qatar National Sports Day mm-hmm. And that despite, yes, there may be a lot of restrictions on Qatari women's move, um, sort of freedom of movement and how they're expected to behave socially. However, when it comes to fitness, there are sort of plenty of women's only facilities out there. And Mm -hmm. I've got to say, since I've returned to the UK, um, that the gyms in Doha are way better than the gyms here in the UK, which was quite surprising when I came back. My name is Ghadal Khatir. I am a Qatari uh, artist living and based in Qatar. Where we go with the media, I think, has also impacted the people's view of women in this region and just being Muslim, being from this region, being from an Arab country in which our culture is different, our religion is different, and we kind of have, you know, different fundamental beliefs. And this notion that women here are oppressed um, uh, or that, you know, we don't have rights and when in fact it's the complete opposite. You know, um, if we look at just the the workforce sector, women represent the greatest, you know, um, percentage of the workforce. 
Um, we also represent uh, the bigger number in terms of literacy and education. We represent high numbers across different sectors. Once you live in, in Qatar or once you live even in Saudi, um, you find that where laws come in, where, and I'm not saying this is, I'm not saying it um, that it's perfect or that it does not need, you know, uh, uh, to be looked at. Qatar has progressed exponentially through the last 10 years that um, we find that it, that it may be time to, you know, sort of revise some of these laws. But in general, it's not what or how the media portrays us to be. And I'm actually proud of how small our population is. But in general, we have a big, uh, big population of intellectuals, smart, smart um, women who are who are occupying different um, fields and different sectors. Human Resources asked me for a no-objection letter. I had no idea what a no-objection letter was, so I called to ask. They said, your dad needs to provide a letter stating he has no objection for you to be hired. I should have pushed back, but I wanted the position at that point. My dad just wrote a letter saying he had no objection to me working. It was nothing sophisticated. I'm Rathna Begum. I am a senior women's rights researcher at Human Rights Watch. Women in Qatar have to contend with a whole series of laws and policies that discriminate against them. I documented how Qatar's laws, policies and practices require women to obtain male guardian permission to marry, study on government scholarships, work in many government jobs, travel abroad unless they marry or turn 25 and obtain certain forms of reproductive health care. Men, on the other hand, need no such permission once they turn 18. Now, much of these rules have no legal basis to them and are actually contrary to Qatar's own constitution. Many women are um, high-achieving women. They've broken barriers in many fields. There are more women graduates than men in, in Qatar. Yet they've talked about how these rules are demeaning and always hanging as a threat over them. Most of the women I spoke to talked about how these rules meant that they could not lead independent lives. And for some of them, they suffered severe discrimination to the point that when they were denied um, the ability to make their own decisions and denied things like being able to study or travel abroad, it led to several harms across their span of their entire lives. And some even suffered mental health harms, including suicide ideation. He came and asked me for my father's number. He said there were new government regulations. I said that's incorrect. As a woman, if you are over 25, you can travel. What you are doing is illegal. I refused to give him the number. They said that it was in the best interest of state security and of Qatari families. I finally gave him the number, hoping my dad was awake. It was midnight and he is 67 years old. My dad was really concerned. Is there an attack, an emergency? Why are you calling me at night? She is 32, she always travels. 
We are citizens and have the right to know what law we are being stopped for. Since I published my report in March 2021, Qatar has done very little to actually change the situation. The one thing that women have said has seems to have happened is an arbitrary rule that was imposed um, in since 2020. Now, the Interior Ministry policy is that women under the age of 25 who are Qatari and unmarried need an exit permit from their male guardians in order to travel abroad, usually done in the form of an exit permit, either through the website or an app or the male guardian in person. Now, in 2020, women over the age of 25 said that they were also being stopped and being asked to call their guardians to confirm that they were not escaping. When these women pushed back, saying that they, as far as they knew, the requirement meant that they were older than than this and that they did not need such permission, and yet they were forced regardless to call their guardians before border control officials would allow them to continue with their with their flight out of the country. This policy, this arbitrary policy beyond the already discriminatory requirement, seems to have come to an end, at least according to women who said that they have since been able to travel without being stopped at the airport after my report come out. The sort of theme of guardianship law and the guardianship system features very heavily in my book, Hijab and Red Lipstick. The premise of the book was sort of, you know, what do you do as a girl in a country where you have to ask your father permission for everything? And um, that sort of of the guardianship system in a nutshell, it's this um, sort of unwritten legal system in which um, women in Qatar um, are always under the protection guardianship of a, of a male mahram relative. So a mahram in Arabic is um, a male relative that Islamically you're forbidden from marrying. So for most women, um, their guardian their guardian at birth is their father. And if their father is no longer around, that guardianship transfers over to the next closest male relative, so brother, uncle or grandfather. And for a woman's entire life in Qatar, they have to get explicit permission from that male guardian for certain major life decisions. So from things like getting married and getting divorced to getting permission to work, studying abroad. Um, Up until very recently, it was even to get a driving license. And for the local Qatari women, it was also getting explicit permission to travel. Um, And this also also affects expat women like me too, because the terminology might be different um, in which we have to get permission from our sponsor. But for someone like me that moved to the country under the sponsorship of my father, um, my father was both my sponsor and my male guardian. So it was me getting explicit permission or um, quote-unquote letters of no objection that actually called officially a letter of no objection from my father to work, to study in university, Um, to get a driving license and to get married. Um, So for your entire life, you are viewed by um, the state there as a sort of minor. It's a system that infantilizes women and you never escape it because when you do, say you do eventually get married, that guardianship 
transfers from your father then to your husband. So you're never, you're never a sort of independent woman with your full 100% agency in your own right ever for your entire life. How does it work in terms of passing nationality down to uh, one's child? So Qatar is one of the countries in the Arab world where Qatari women cannot pass their um, nationality down to their children if they have married a non-Qatari um, a non-Qatari man. And that's something viewed by many human rights organizations as an abuse of human rights. Has there been any progress as far as this system over the last decade or so. So in terms of the guardianship system, it still very much exists. And there's only one area in which there's been improvement. And that was um, the law about uh, women having to get explicit permission from a male guardian to get their driving license. But every um, other aspect of the guardianship system is very much still in place and has not changed. Um, to the extent that actually Saudi Arabia is actually now far ahead, if that makes sense, ahead mm. of Qatar now when it comes to the rights that women enjoy. What is the actual implication of this kind of system on um, women and girls themselves as far as that, that burden, that additional burden that's placed upon them? It's very much um, a highly patriarchal and misogynistic legal system and you know when you go through when you, if you go and sit and go through Qatari law and Qatari legislation it's very hard to know what is what because there's some things that are explicitly written in legal in in Qatar Qatari law but other things that are sort of like unwritten rules um, I guess if you compared it to like the UK where I am now it's sort of that difference between what is like English um, sort of civil law and what is just like English common law. Qatar doesn't have like a morality police um, or anything like that, like Saudi Arabia used to have or which Iran still currently has. Um, but I think just one example of, of something that happened to me and which I've heard happen to others and it's, it sounds, I mean, it does sound a little bit petty and silly, is that um, for some reason, whenever I used to walk alone there in, in, the, in the capital city of Doha, uh, walking is not something really that women do on their own there. Um, A, because it's really, really um, hot. It's as hot as, as an oven, especially in the summer. Mm. And I think it's also just not seen as socially acceptable for a woman to be walking on her own. Um, so for some reason, I um, used to, well, I, I'm British, so I'm used to walking everywhere. And it's something that I sort of never grew out of, when, even when I moved to Qatar from the UK. Mm-hmm. And I was stopped several times by the police when I was just simply like, walking back home or walking to the supermarket and they would stop me and ask for my Qatari ID card and like ask loads of questions in Arabic because I can speak Arabic fluently about um, where are you going? Why are you out on your own? You shouldn't be walking by yourself. And their excuse used to be that 
they wanted to check my Qataria ID cards and residency permit to make sure that it was sort of in check and valid. That was like an excuse they always used to use. But what I read, but what was obvious was that they were stopping me because I was a woman walking on her own and own and that perhaps they were making certain assumptions about me. Mm. Um, so that certain assumption obviously being was, am I a sex worker? Am I trying mm. to be picked up by men? Mm. Um, and then as soon as they would see on my ID card that I was from the UK and then obviously because I was there with my dad and my dad as my sponsor, they would then see my dad's name on the card. They would quickly do a complete 180 degrees turn on their tone and voice from being very sharp and demanding and quite rude yeah. to suddenly being very sweet talking once they had seen on my card that I'm British and seen my father's name. Yeah, the privilege being, kicked in. Yeah, and then just this complete 180 degrees turn to, oh, um, you know, are you okay? Uh, please keep safe while you're walking. You know, may God protect you. Have a nice day. So um, this is just like a silly, petty example, but that there are very obvious unwritten social rules when it comes to what women are expected to do and how they're expected to behave and what they're allowed to do or not do in public. One of them being apparently that I shouldn't be walking by on in you know, broad daylight by myself through the streets of Doha. It's a legal system that very much um, restricts women's freedom of, of movement, freedom of choice and their agency, um, sort of legally positioning them as minors for their entire lives. And it also, and this is something that I, I argue in my articles and in my book, Hijab and Red Lipstick, I argue that the guardianship system is an enabler both of the patriarchy and enabler of, of domestic violence and sexual abuse. It allows men that are, you know, naturally, um, you know, perpetrators of domestic violence and sexual abuse. Um, it allows them that, you know, that opportunity for misuse of their authority and misuse of their power. And it makes domestic violence and sexual abuse more likely. I had many female friends at university during my time there. I went to the state university there, which is Qatar University. And I just remember time after time, um, you know, there being these instances where a female friend had been beaten by a brother or beaten by a father, and that's both Qatari and non-Qatari young women, and where when they had complained to the authorities and the authorities had called their brother or the father in, all that they they were told was just never to do this again to their sister or to their daughter and made to sign a piece of paper called a ta'ahud which in English means a pledge where basically you sign this piece of paper saying you'll never do it again and then that's it they're packed off home and you know um, basically packed off home back to the daughter or to the sister that they were beating or abusing um, also there have been many young women that have told me that when, that when they have complained to the authorities there um, that there are victims of domestic violence um, that either they are ignored and nothing happens 
or that um, there's this centre there called the Family Consultation Centre where they will try to mediate between like a woman that's being abused by her husband or a daughter that's being abused by their father and it's sort of like this process where they sit and they just sort of try and patch things up Mm. between the victim of the abuse and the abuser rather than actually punish that abuser and take sort of um, like criminal measures against them. And I think one of the biggest problems is that domestic finance is still not penalised or criminalised by Qatari penal penal, um, law, the penal code. Uh, And and that is why so many cases of domestic violence and, and sexual abuse sort of go under the radar or the police and authorities never do anything about it. The fact that it's that domestic violence isn't penalized, is this unique to Qatar? Is it something that you've found in other countries in the region? Via the freelance journalism that I do, one of the areas that I, I pay special focus to is gender justice in the Middle East and North Africa or now called the um, Swana region and through my research my articles um, I found that no this is not something that is unique to Qatar um, however um, many of the other countries in in the Arab world have made significant progress I would say in the last seven or eight years where they have started now to enact legislation and laws specific to domestic violence against women. Mm-hmm. Um, but for some reason, Qatar is still lagging behind and there's still no actual specific law that criminalizes um, violence against women. So they very much need to, they need to catch up. I think one of the main arguments that I always have whenever I speak to anyone about the guardianship system in Qatar, um, I think there's two two sort of arguments and, and, and a counter argument that I have. That Qatar as a state very much puts forward um, this idea that they do have women's rights and they pinpoint it on two um, on two things that first of all they have the highest uh, number of Qatari female um, ministers and ambassadors within the government and that they also have one of the highest uh, numbers of Qatari women enrolled into higher education in the Arab world while these two things are true and, of course, very um, positive things, applaudable, these are not measures uh, of women's rights and not complete indicators of women's emancipation and empowerment. Because if, as a woman, I need a guardian's explicit permission in order to take on that role of CEO or ambassador or minister, and I need my guardian's permission in order to do that further study, then I don't have complete agency and I don't have complete women's rights. I would have complete complete women's rights when I'm at a point where I don't need anyone's permission to study, to work, um, to marry, and you know, to move about freely. Um, but I think there's either a lack of understanding in the country on what women's emancipation, women's rights actually mean, 
or they're deliberately choosing not to understand because the guardianship system um, sort of benefits them as a state and as a patriarchal and conservative society. And the second thing, I guess, which is my counter argument, when women in Qatar say, oh, no, we do have rights, we are empowered, you know, look at me working here and doing this and doing that, we are free. Um, My counter argument is that you're saying this because you don't recognize your own privilege that the women that are able to work and move around and study freely and travel abroad and wear whatever they want it's because they come from families in which the male members of that family are forward thinking and liberal they still need those male family members permission they haven't stopped needing their permission it's just that because they're from privileged backgrounds that this issue of permission is not an issue for them they get that permission without their fathers or husbands or brothers giving it a second thought but there are many women who I worked with studied with who I taught as an English tutor and then coached as a personal trainer where um, where they are very much restricted in terms of how they dress who they speak to um, when they like if when they're allowed to go out, uh, all areas of their life um, are very much controlled and restricted. So to those women who are saying that, you know, the guardianship system is no longer an issue and that there are women's rights in Qatar, I just want them to step back for a minute and to think about their own privilege and that not all women in Qatar have the level of privilege that they do. What do you say to the to the perception that women in Qatar have no rights? With Qatar being an absolute an absolute monarchy, so this covers all areas, not just women's rights. The rights that women in Qatar enjoy are the rights that the monarchy have handed to them. So yes, there is a level of political participation that is allowed, and women um, obviously have the right to education and to work, but... With that big but and that clause of it being explicitly permitted by a male guardian. So the guardianship system overrules everything. And for that reason, I would say there is not complete women's rights in Qatar. And complete women's uh, rights in Qatar will only be achieved when the guardianship system is abolished. Thank you so much for your time. Qatar must end all discriminatory rules and policies against women, including male guardianship, pass legislation on anti-discrimination and domestic violence, and ensure there is a civic space so that women can demand their own rights in their own country.